Would you now please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15, as today we look at one of the watershed issues in the entire New Testament, and that is the Jerusalem Council. And just to say to you how close, perilously close, the church came, uh, apart from God's supervision, to uh, losing the gospel. Um, and so this is, by everyone's account, uh, one of the most critical passages uh, in the New Testament regarding the nature of the gospel and who is included in the people of God. Uh, with that said, hear now the word of the Lord as we read the first 21 verses of Acts chapter 15. Hear now God's word. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Hmm. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them from them a people for his name. And with, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. 
Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our God and Father, how we thank you today for your word. It is a refreshment to us. It is an encouragement to us. And we pray that as your word goes forth today, it will go forth in power and that it will work in us that which is well-pleasing in your sight. And we pray that the Holy Spirit who breathed out this word will work in our hearts to shine uh, the light of the truth into us, will show us the glory of Jesus, and cause our hearts to be warmly drawn toward him. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So there are three things that I want us to look at today as we make our way through this portion of the book of Acts. First, I want us to see the conflict that had developed over the Gentiles being included into the people of God. Second, I want us to look at the counsel of the apostles and elders. We probably will only look at Peter and Paul and Barnabas today and look at James next week. And then thirdly, I want to make contemporary applications of this passage to the church, in particular this church, today. And so as I said earlier, God's abundant blessing on the mission to the Gentiles and the controversy it provoked stands at the central point in the book of Acts, and it is the theological watershed in the gospel's advance to the ends of the earth. And so this is a highly significant, very important chapter in the Bible. And as we've journeyed our way through the book of Acts, we have seen how, step by step, the Gentiles had been brought into the church. At first, we see isolated cases like the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch and the Roman centurion. Then began the movement of the Spirit in Syrian Antioch in chapters 11 and 12, which resulted in the first multi-ethnic church. As a result, the Antiochian church launched the first strategic missionary journey to the Gentiles when it sent Saul and Barnabas out as missionaries. Gradually, the Jewish Christian church came to see the Lord's hand was at work in the inclusion of the nations into the church. And let me say something about this. It has always been the purposes of God. It has always been from the very beginning in his covenant with Abraham that the gospel was for not only the people of God under the old covenant, primarily the Jewish people, but for the nations. That Israel's purpose in the world was never to gloat in their election and the promises and the covenants of God toward them, but were always to see themselves as an instrument in God's hand to bring the light to the nations. And now we see it happening under the inauguration of the new covenant. We're seeing Gentiles come in droves to the gospel, especially 
pagans. These are not Gentile God-fearers who happened to attend the synagogues, some who were converted to Judaism, but rather pagans, absolute pagans, void of any religious or theological background that was consistent with Christianity. And so, it was widely understood that the Gentiles were, by God's grace, capable of repentance unto life. Inevitably, however, a controversy arose about how the new Gentile converts were to be incorporated into the church. And you'll notice in the opening verse of this chapter, it says some men came in down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now who are these some men? Well, if you'll look all the way down to verse 24, you will see, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them with you to our beloved Barnabas and Paul. And so these men are not representative of the Jerusalem church. They are not connected to James. But they are contending that the Gentile converts of uh, the missionary journey of Paul were not obeying the law of Moses. Uh, they were breaking the Ten Commandments, were they? Or what was their concern? And it's important to read that some men who came down with verse 24, the official letter from the apostles and elders in Jerusalem says, Some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you. So though these men were from the Jerusalem church where Peter and James presided, even Paul refers to them as men from James in the book of Galatians, these teachers did not represent the settled or official position of the apostles. These teachers, however, insisted that all new Gentile converts had to be circumcised and adopt all the custom and the law of Moses. So they were saying to be truly in the church, to truly have status as a believer you not only had to repent of your sins, turn from yourself, and trust completely in Jesus Christ, you had to, for all practical purposes, convert to Judaism. You had to become a Jew in thought and practice and custom. And so they were saying, it's just like Gentile converts to Judaism before Christ, you now must place yourself under circumcision, which is a general rubric, which we will talk a lot about in just a moment. These t teachers insisted that they had to adopt all the custom and the law of Moses. Now to our ears, that sounds kind of strange. Surely the new Antiochian believers discipled by Paul and Barnabas were taught to obey the Ten Commandments given by Moses. Surely they uh, were surely not lying and committing adultery at will. So why would these Judean teachers be concerned that the Gentile Christians weren't obeying Moses? When they refer to circumcision in the law of Moses, they are not thinking so much of what we might call the moral principles of the law of the Old Testament, but rather, hear me carefully, 
ceremonial regulations. These regulations were very detailed prescriptions um, that were given in the Old Testament about food, about dress, and other practices that the Mosaic Law, uh, Exodus through Deuteronomy, said made one clean or have the status of being clean and acceptable for God's presence in tabernacle and temple worship. Unlike the basic moral principles, the Ten Commandments, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not commit adultery, etc., which set the adherent apart ethically from non-adherents, the ceremonial regulations set the adherent apart culturally from non-adherents. These regulations determine how, what, and how you ate, how you dressed, and so on. What was the purpose of the Mosaic ceremonial regulations? In Old Testament times, the ceremonial law was a way for the Jews to show their distinctness as the people of God. It helped them marry within the believing community, making it much harder to fall in love with an unbeliever. Also, it was a way for God to show those who approach that they had to be clean and holy and pure and that atonement and cleansing had to be affected for them to enter his presence. However, these regulations themselves were never meant to be ways that make us pure and acceptable to God. The book of Hebrews tells us the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings. External regulations uh, applying until the time of the new order. In other words, these ceremonial laws have not so much been abrogated as fulfilled. They are fulfilled in Christ. It is Christ who makes us clean. Uh, hold your finger in Acts 15 and turn with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 7. And I want you to see how Jesus addressed this idea of being clean. Mark chapter 7, and beginning in uh, verse 14. And he, that is Jesus, called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. And so the Jewish people at this point had mistakenly assumed that if they did the regulations, it made them pure and clean. 
So though it was understandable, it was mistaken for the Jews to come to see their cultural separation as spiritual separation and purity. These teachers continued to believe that cultural change was absolutely necessary for all Christians. Gentiles must become practicing Jews. Now, let's look a little bit at the background for the crisis of this chapter. Jewish Christians had been taught from infancy all their lives that Gentiles were the unclean, the unacceptable, those the other, those outside of the covenant, and that the Jews alone were the people of God. But God sent repeated messages recounted for us in Acts chapter 8 through Acts chapter 14 that Gentiles could be saved too and made members of the people of God through Christ. And we can see by the response of the apostles in Acts chapter 8, 17, 11, 18, 12, 22, this general concept was accepted by Jewish Christians. But we can see from chapter 13, verse 26 and 46, most early Gentile Christian converts were already Jewish converts. In other words, they had already adopted many of the Jewish cultural customs, which Jews had come to connect with spiritual purity and cleanness. The cultural differences then between Jewish and Gentile God-fearers were muted. However, when the Jews refused to let Paul preach at the synagogue, Paul announced that he was therefore turning to preach directly to the Gentiles. This meant that Paul would not only be preaching to Gentile converts to Judaism, but to cultural pagans. Now many of the new Gentile converts were received into the church by baptism without becoming Jewish converts by circumcision. The cultural differences between uh, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians were exceedingly sharp. They ate and dressed and lived very differently. Many Gentile cultural practices were highly offensive to Jewish believers. And we can surmise that Jewish believers looked very Puritan, straight-laced, and narrow to the Gentile converts. This created a huge crisis for the church. John Stott puts it succinctly. It's in the quote in your bulletin. It was one thing for Jerusalem leaders to give their approval to the conversion of the Gentiles, but could they approve of commitment to the Messiah without inclusion in Judaism? Was their vision big enough to see the gospel of Christ not as a reform movement within Judaism, but as good news for the whole world and the church of Christ as the international family of God? These were revolutionary questions. In other words, the opponents of Paul were saying this, not all Jewish persons are Christian, but all Christians must also become Jewish. Paul was saying, no, the gospel is for everyone. Now, Peter, at this point, comes forward and makes a very short and pointed speech. He talks about three things and draws conclusions from them. First, he notes that God has chosen to speak the gospel to Gentiles through Peter himself. This is doubtless regarding the incident of Cornelius, 
the Roman centurion. Peter's story, uh, including the vision, the messengers from Cornelius, and the voice of God, were strong evidence that God wanted Gentiles to hear the gospel. Second, he notes that the Gentiles clearly had received the Holy Spirit. This means that the same grasp of the gospel and the same experiences of God's presence and the same transformation of character, note purified their hearts by faith, have all been observed in the Gentile converts. This is a powerful point. Even without circumcision, the Holy Spirit very visibly was doing the work of change in sanctification in the Gentiles. Paul says the heart, that is the inner person, the seat, the core of who we are, changed in these Gentile people without circumcision, but rather through the preaching of the gospel. For in Christ Jesus, Paul would later say, circumcision nor uncircumcision counts. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself to love. So how are our hearts made pure? How are we made acceptable to the Lord? How are we regarded as clean? Only by faith. And what is faith? It is not relying on ourselves. Faith is not something we do. It is looking outside of ourselves and laying hold of Christ. And that is what transforms a person's life. It isn't adopting a new religion. It isn't the clothes you wear, the food you eat, or the rituals you do. But rather, it is faith and faith alone that purifies, makes the heart acceptable before God. And that faith is a gift of God. So by faith, again, abandoning all self-reliance, abandoning all self-righteousness, abandoning all strategic attempts to save ourselves, and throwing ourselves upon the grace of Christ is the only thing that will give you a pure heart. Do you hear me? It is the only thing. And nothing else will. And that is what Peter is saying. Third, Peter notes that the Jews have never been able to live up to the ceremonial law of Moses. He says, a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. In other words, they're preaching, you have to submit yourself to the law of Moses, but let's get real for a moment. Nobody's been able to keep this. Nobody has it within them to keep this perpetually, perfectly, fully from a heart that loves God. It's a clear admission that the Jews themselves have never been able to live up to the standards of the Mosaic legislation, and the point is powerful. He is saying, you hypocrites, how can you demand that they be saved through obeying these rules when neither we nor your ancestors were ever able to do it? You've got to watch law people. They're everywhere. And law people are not happy unless they are imposing their law on you, which they themselves cannot keep. Um, the number one purpose for the giving of the law in the Old Testament, the Mosaic ceremonial regulations and judicial regulations, the purpose of that was to show people you can't keep it. That's the purpose of the law, to show you that you cannot keep it. 
and to drive you outside of yourselves to Christ and to run to Him and embrace Him as your Lord and Savior who receives all who come to Him by faith. There are innumerable ways in which we see our cultural distinctives as a kind of spiritual righteousness. I'm going to start meddling with you in the next few moments. Those of us who are more punctual uh, in our culture may disdain cultures which are more relationally centered than task centered. I always tell my wife, I tend to be punctual. And sometimes I get a little self-righteous about being punctual. She'd say I'd get very self-righteous about it. But I get a little self-righteous about it thinking, well, I'm not the kind of person who's ever going to be late. Because I know this is what people do when you're late. They rehearse and count your faults. That's what they do. Isn't it true? Where is so-and-so? I don't know. They're always late. Uh, They probably don't even know we're having the meeting. So we set up these distinctives that are ours and make them required for everyone. Those of us from more emotive, expressive cultures may disdain cultures where people are more emotionally reserved and cognitive. It's easy to look down at someone else's taste in music. I'm still praying about rap. I just can't, I can't get there. I mean, I'm trying. I can admire some of it. I, I, I've taken a quantum leap because my first reaction to rap was, that ain't even music. It sounds like high school cheerleading. When I went to high school, that's the kind of cheers we did. But now, I can listen to some of it if it's not too filthy and go, okay, I get it. It's an art form. It really is talent involved in being able to do that. Not a lot, but some. I still need sanctification, as you can tell. On the mission field, it's very common for Anglo-European Christian evangelists to insist on a way to organize churches or conduct worship that is inappropriate to the new culture. For some reason, those of us in the Reformed tradition seem to think there's only one culturally acceptable way to worship, and unless you do it that way, God doesn't hear you. That's a little self-righteous, don't you think? Yeah. The other uh, examples are endless. It is endemic for older churches and older Christians to impose upon newer churches and believers those patterns that are not essential to biblical faith, but rather a cultural accretion promoted to the place of a spiritual principle, and we bind people to it. And that's bondage. That's not freedom. And so we see this happening over and over again in the church and in our culture. Can't decide whether to talk to you about what James said. No, I need to develop that far more. So what I'm going to do is move to contemporary application. What we learn about differences of opinion today. First, we learn that church councils, meetings of church leaders, do have the right and authority to regulate belief and behavior. The letter that they send out as a result of this Jerusalem conference is not just advice, but it's a judgment. 
Second, we learn that we need to give in on some issues, namely those issues that are just cultural. We must not elevate customs and traditions that are not biblical to the level of absolute principle. Yet you see people do that all the time. All the time. You know, there's uh, what the Bible calls adiaphorous things or things that don't matter. Romans 14 and part of 15 addresses this. And it speaks to those who are strong in the faith, the weaker brother, and all those issues. But basically what the Apostle Paul says is that there are absolutes, that is God's revealed truth that is black and white and clear for all to see. And then there are non-absolutes where the Bible doesn't specifically address a cultural issue. And then there are personal convictions. That's what we Christians do about non-absolutes. We take them and form our personal convictions and we either practice them or not practice them based upon our particular view of culture at that moment. Paul said the stronger brother is not to despise the weaker brother, that is the person whose conscience condemns him in practicing in this gray area. For example, let's just talk about alcoholic beverage. Some Christians and some traditions believe that any drinking is against God's will, should be condemned, that Christians should never once allow alcohol to taste their lips. And when you ask them about Jesus turning the water into wine at a wedding feast, they will say it was just really good grape juice. And then, and then you ask them other questions about that, and they will say that uh, all drinking is wrong. The Bible does, in an absolute way, condemn drunkenness, does it not? And then the Bible gives us liberty to decide how we're going to participate in something like alcohol, or the eating of meat or other practices, we make our personal convictions, but we do not have the right to impose our personal convictions on everyone and judge them for it. We do not have that right. And Christians do it all the time. We're always condemning people who hold differing personal... We make our personal convictions personal absolutes. I hope you're following me here. I hope this is clearer than mud. But we adopt our personal convictions and then judge everyone who doesn't adopt the same personal convictions that we have about a particular issue. R.C. Sproul was once asked in class, I was sitting there, and he asked in class, R.C., what do you think about alcoholic beverages? Is it a sin to drink alcohol? And R.C. paced around the room. That's what he did when he had a question he had to think about for a second. He'd just walk around the room. Finally, he stopped in the middle of the room. And he looked at somebody and he said, What happened in John chapter 2? Wedding of Cana. What did Jesus do? He turned water into wine. Not only did he make wine, but he gave wine to other people. And it was the best wine, not the watered-down cheap stuff. And so he said, here's my point. If, if it's a sin to make wine, if it's a sin to give wine to other people to drink, if it's a sin to drink it, then Jesus sinned, and we have no Savior. You see? 
So you have to be careful how you adopt these personal convictions. And there just seems to be a pecking order at times about how these things are. We need, uh, we learn that we need to give in on some issues. We must not elevate customs and traditions that are not biblical to the level of absolute principle. Yet, we learn that we are never to give in on the gospel. Underneath the controversy, the gospel of grace was at stake. And on that concept, there can never be any compromise. Never, ever on the gospel. The pure gospel is the gospel of grace. That is that God, out of the goodness, kindness, love, and mercy of His own heart, intervened into our lost, hopeless situation by sending His Son to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And that is save ourselves. That He obeyed the law, moral law of God completely and fulfilled it in every jot and tittle. That as a perfect lamb of God without spot or blemish, he offered atonement for our sins, took our sins and judgment down into death, conquered it, gloriously resurrected on the third day. God stamped his seal of approval. He was delivered up for our sins, but raised again for our justification. That God would, upon the basis of faith, believing in Jesus Christ, would declare us forever to be right with him on the basis of what Jesus has done. And you add one drop of anything to that, you've lost the gospel. You've lost it. There is no, you receive Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord and or but. I had a pastor that used to say, you know what a but is? A but is on both ends of a goat. What we need to see is that the gospel is true. It's the truth. And it's powerful. It's alive. It saves. We don't have to prop it up. We don't have to paint it up. We don't have to backlight it. We don't have to change it to be more appealing. It itself is the power of God. And we don't compromise on that. And all issues that deviate from the gospel end up being pathologies in our own lives. We become quite sick when we deviate from the gospel and have a Christ plus gospel. It is so easy for us, and I want to get back to this. My friend who's with the Lord now, Richard Lovelace, says this. Whenever the Christian church loses its orientation to the gospel of grace and suddenly falls back into a view that we're saved by our performances, there's a tendency to grab hold of cultural distinctions and endow them with spiritual value. When the church has lost track of an important element in the saving work of Christ and was teaching that believers are not justified not by faith alone but by being sanctified, as a result it becomes very easy for the church to revert to an old covenant lifestyle. What is an old covenant lifestyle? If you obey me, I will bless you. Therefore, an old covenant believer would live this way. Lord, I did what you said. You owe me. You are obligated to be to bless me. And the old covenant was, if you disobey me, I will curse you and everything about your life. Now, 
You can't mix that up with the gospel. And so here's what happens when people lose justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It produces a flowering of asceticism, reflecting an unconscious need for lists of clean and unclean activities and a rebirth of Phariseeism. Hardline fundamentalists like Tertullian ruled out many intellectual activities. The theater, because of its origins in pagan worship. Dancing, because it might inflame ill-controlled sexual passage, passions. And cosmetics, if God meant you to smell like a flower, he would have given you a crop of them on your head. That's Tertullian. Thus, those who are not secure in Christ cast about for spiritual life preservers with which to support their confidence and in their frantic search they not only cling to the shreds of ability and righteousness they find in themselves but fix upon their race their membership in a party their familiar social and ecclesiastical patterns and their culture as means of self-recommendation and righteousness the culture is put on as if it were armor against self-doubt and it becomes a mental straitjacket which cleaves to the flesh and can never be removed through comprehensive, but through comprehensive faith in the saving work of Christ. Our faith is exercised. A Christian is free to be, once faith is exercised, a Christian is free to be enculturated, to wear his culture like a comfortable suit of clothes. He can shift to other cultural clothing temporarily if he or she wishes to do so, as Paul suggests in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where he says, I am all things to all people, if by any means I might save some. There are innumerable ways in which we see our cultural distinctives as a kind of spiritual righteousness. Those of us from more, as I said earlier, punctual cultures look down on those who are not. And so we see these kind of things in the church which destroy the unity of the church and the community of the church. And so therefore, when this issue arose in Acts chapter 15, it is a watershed moment. Thank God the Apostle Paul was there. Thank God the Apostle Peter was there. And thank God the Apostle James was there, as we will see next week, to show us how this problem nearly killed the church, but for God's good pleasure. You think about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is alive and powerful, and it exposes us. It shows us our hearts. It shows us where we love things and use people, where we love ourselves more than we love you, where we um, practice idolatry in ways we don't even understand. And so, Father, we thank you that by faith, we can be clean. That in union with Christ, we are as acceptable as He is. And so we pray your blessing upon us as we continue to worship together. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.